From Bowling Green State University and the Institute for the Study of Culture and Society, this is BG Ideas. I'm going to show you this with a wonderful experiment. Welcome to the BG Ideas podcast, a collaboration between the Institute for the Study of Culture and Society and the School of Media and Communication at Bowling Green State University. I'm Jolie Sheffer, an Associate Professor of English and American Culture Studies and the Director of ICS. This is the first episode of a three-part series entitled Homelands and Histories, in which we talk to people making big impacts on local communities through their work on land use and cultural heritage. The word homeland can evoke comfortable feelings of patriotism or cultural identity, but it is also used to justify expulsion or even genocide. Similarly, the word histories is meant to call attention to the many points of conflict, debate, erasure, violence, and silencing that accompany efforts to describe and interpret the past. Today, we are joined by Dr. Dylan A.T. Minor, an artist, scholar, and activist who identifies as Wisako de Winini, or Métis, a native person of mixed ancestry with ties to indigenous communities in the U.S. and Canada. Dylan is an adjunct curator of indigenous art at the Michigan State University Museum, as well as the founder of the Just Seeds Artist Collective and a board member of the Michigan Indian Education Council. He recently commenced the Butaganis um, Drummond Island Land Reclamation Project, a decolonial initiative to acquire land and establish a cultural center for Métis, whose ancestors were forced to leave the island during the War of 1812. Dylan is also the Director of American Indian and Indigenous Studies at Michigan State University and an Associate Professor of Transcultural Studies in the Residential College in the Arts and Humanities at Michigan State. He's the author of the book Creating Aztlan, Chicano Art, Indigenous Sovereignty, and Lowriding Across Turtle Island, in which he shows that Chicano art needs to be understood in the context of Indigenous history, anti-colonial struggle, and Native American studies. I'm very pleased to welcome him to BGSU as part of ICS's 2018 Spring Speaker Series. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. One of the things that we're interested in at ICS is discussing the relationship between different kinds of knowledge and different modes of activism. So scholarship, art, grassroots organizing. Can you start us out by telling us a bit about your particular path of you know, negotiating those three? What set you out into doing, trying to do all three? Sure. So, so I kind of come into into the work I do. I grew up in punk rock circles and kind of crusty anarchist zine making circles, and much of the work I do kind of emerges from that space. I also, as you said, I'm a Wisakode or a Métis person, and one of the Cree words for Métis is otebemesiwak, um, and that's a Cree word which means the people who own themselves are the people without bosses. So much of the work I do thinks about the ways of dismantling hierarchies in all of its forms. So I don't see a distinction necessarily between the scholarly work I do, the community-based work, the arts practice, or even kind of the familial and community work I do outside of or in spite of the institution or university. The, the kind of the more I get involved in various projects, the more I see all of them intermingling and intertwined into into a holistic whole. So kind of what I'm doing, uh, say, with the Potagini Minas Land Reclamation Project, you know, is not that much difference with what I'm doing, say, in the pedagogical practices in the classroom, working with uh, urban indigenous youth in the uh, Native Kids Ride Bike Project. Uh, to me, they're all intertwined and all part of the same holistic way of thinking about building a better and more socially just world. So how do you then 
decide kind of what the praxis is that goes with the project, right? Because your audience are going to differ depending on which mode you're working in. So when you're like taking on a new project, how do you decide which path or paths to follow? Sure. Part of the reason I went to graduate school in art history was because um, I wanted to think about the ways. I, I had gone to art school for a year. I'd gone to the College for Creative Studies in Detroit for a year and dropped out, um, partially because I felt that art school wasn't giving me some of the larger social or cultural um, worldviews to understand more engaged making of work. And so I kind of uh, went to graduate school in studying the history of art, particularly focusing on arts of the Americas, kind of indigenous and mestizo or, or Métis practices throughout this hemisphere, as a way to inform my own practice. The further I get away from, from needing to write academic and scholarly texts, the less I do. I felt there's a very colonial way of framing arguments that exist within academic writing. Part of the reason I've been writing more creative nonfiction, more poetically, is because I think that engages with the themes I'm engaging with in a much more nuanced and, and way that actually matches the work itself. So, so when I write now, much of what I try to write, I like to think about ways that the form of the writing can actually reproduce the ideas within it. And I think that when I'm engaged in creative practices, whether it's something like the elders say we don't visit anymore, which emerged in conversations with retired Ojibwe auto workers. And so I started to employ that, uh, what I started to call the methodology of visiting based on what they'd shared in all aspects of what I do and what I've been doing. So I started thinking about, you know, what would it mean to slow down, to actually engage more intimately and more critically in all moments, in all practices that I'm engaged in. You've worked with a wide variety of media in your art. You've done silk screening, um, uh, to building and decorating bicycles. You've talked about the pennant as a form. Can you talk about some of those examples and how you know, you selected that particular form and how that helped convey the thematics that you were interested in. Sure. So I came up, I, I used to identify as a printmaker. I would make prints and that's what I would do. Oftentimes uh, relief prints, wood block and, and linoleum block prints. And uh, more recently, maybe the last decade or so, I've identified it as, as an artist who engages in projects. Um, and I think that, you know, in some ways it comes from those conversations with elders where I'm, I'm at a place and I think that there's something liberatory about arts and creative practice. There was an interview um, or a small essay I read, I think it was an E-Flux a number of years ago by the Mexican curator Cuauhtémoc Medina, where he said that contemporary galleries are one of the last places for radical politics left. And while I don't fully believe or, or agree with, with Medina on that point, I think there's something, I have some commitment to understanding and thinking about art as significant and, and, and important. So when I engage in projects now, I just have ideas and begin to call them artistic projects, uh, call that a project. So for instance, my my grandfather's grandmother was an herbalist. She was known for particular forms of herbal medicines. And that's knowledge that didn't get to my generation or my father's generation or my grandfather's or grandparents' generation. And so what I'm interested in doing is, okay, how can we frame that as a particular form of project and move forward with it in that way. And so many of the projects I come to begin there. Um, what is a, a knowledge form or practice I'd like to learn? And how can I, as an artist, 
as a Wisako de Wininiwag person, how can I engage in that? So sometimes it takes the form of, of print, sometimes it takes the form of community collaborations. There's been lots of conversations in the last number of years about what people call social practice. There's lots of critiques of social practice. And how does this all intertwine together? Sometimes it's particular forms, sometimes it's conceptual. You know, you talked about sort of the elders, but you've also done a lot of work with children and youth. Could you talk to us about some of those projects and why you think that's a particularly important audience to engage with? Sure. I do a lot of workshops uh, with youth, primarily with indigenous youth, but also lots of, of urban youth and rural youth, uh, Latino youth, Chicano youth in the U.S., Canada, a bit with Sami communities in northern Scandinavia, a bit with indigenous communities in Australia, and uh, to some extent in, in, in Latin America as well. You know, as somebody who's interested in, you know, in weird stuff, who's interested in, you know, um, certain kinds of punk and hip hop and, and, and certain artistic practices and the creation of alternative uh, social social institutions. Many of the collaborations with youth come from that space. So Anishinaabe Bensaw Bimshkwabshkigawag Native Kids Ride Bikes comes from uh, wanting to interact with youth and have them interact with fluent-speaking Ojibwe elders. So in Lansing, Michigan, we have some of the largest numbers of fluent Anishinaabeg speakers in the state of Michigan, but on the U.S. side of the border. Um, but there was a disconnect between them and them and youth. And so uh, building bikes became an intentional time to gather people together around a particular thing of doing, uh, doing and making. And if in the end people only learned how to make a bike, great, but it hopefully became something more than that. You're talking about the sort of colonial forms that so much of knowledge um, production in its institutionalized ways operates. And so it's really interesting to hear you talk about these projects that are designed to sort of function outside of those frameworks. How do you in your own workshops and practice work to get outside of that habit of the kind of colonialist resource extraction of like, oh, you go in or you're brought in and it's like, now you're going to be our native informant. And then everyone goes back to doing things the way they always did them. So my partner, Estrella Torres, who uh, runs a project in Lansing called the Indigenous Youth Empowerment Program, IEP, uh, which is a native youth program. She co-directs it with, uh, with some friends of hers. And she also coordinates a project with Latino youth called Nuestros Cuentos, which is writes uh, stories with youth. But one of the things that she, she develops is this idea of kind of uh, reverse uh, resource extraction. What does it mean to be inside institutions within the university? In what ways can we extrapolate and build upon the resources and relationships we have in institutions uh, to benefit communities, um, particularly communities communities we're parts of, uh, we're a part of, but also communities we might not be a part of. How can we make those benefit uh, communities, uh, particularly communities of color, indigenous communities, and other communities, immigrant communities, etc. And so I do a lot of work uh, against uh, resource extraction, anti-mining stuff, anti-pipeline stuff. Um, and so one question I've been asking and thinking through is, what is the opposite of extraction? What would that look like? What is, what is the opposite of actually mining and or having pipelines for fossil fuels. What would that look like? And just as a rhetorical question, you know, what would that look like for those of us in places who have access to particular resources? How can we kind of reverse those those pipelines? Your book is on Chicano art and movements, and you also work on indigenous Métis art. So can you provide an overview of some of those histories and convergences? 
Yeah, I, I'm really interested in the you know the detribalized histories that happen at both the intersections of both settler colonial nation state borders, whether it's the U.S.-Canada border or the U.S.-Mexico border. I grew up as a, a white-coated uh, indigenous person in the state of Michigan in a community that had a migrant farm worker community, a Chicano and Mexican-American and, and Mexican farm worker community. And from an early age, was seeing the linkages between the Métis histories of the Great Lakes and the Plains and Prairies of the U.S.-Canada borderlands and some of the Chicano or Mexican-American forms of indigeneity that you see in Texas and New Mexico. And, and my partner, her family, family, you know, comes from Genisoro communities. And Genisoros are folks in New Mexico and Texas that were basically taken, uh, kind of detribalized indigenous folks that were then kind of put into servitude for Spanish uh, settlers. So thinking about the ways that both colonial projects happen, whether it's the, the U.S. Uh, colonial project, the Canadian colonial project, the Mexican colonial project, and what they do to indigenous folks and to detribalized uh, non recognized recognized indigenous folks. So in that book, in particular, I look at Chicano or Mexican-American artistic practices after 1968 in relationship to a concept called Aslan. And Aslan is the Xica or Nahua origin story that before the so-called Aztecs founded Tenochtitlan or what is now Mexico City, they came from this cave on an island, and that place was called Aslan. Um, and during the 1960s, during the Chicano power era, activists began to talk about the U.S. Southwest as that location. So one of the things I articulate in that book is thinking about Chicanos or Mexican-American folks as an indigenous nation and as a nation of movement. And what does it mean to slowly move across land? So using the metaphor of low riding, which is, you know, whether it's low riding in, in cars or low riding in bikes, that is, we all know low riders, but, you know, some say they started in Española, New Mexico. Some say they started in East Los Angeles. Either way, whatever the origin story is, there's a, it's an anti-capitalist form of movement, right? Um, we think of muscle cars, we think of the automobile. I grew up in Michigan, kind of the birthplace of the automobile, right? That's about getting places quickly. But when you low ride through place, you intimately know the territory, begin to talk to the land, relate to the land. And it's a big F you to capitalism where time is money, right? You're intentionally inverting that system. And so for me, making these linkages are important. As we both resist violent state practices, we're in a moment in time where the U.S. government is moving in certain ways. Uh, you know, we've been kind of, I've been advocating kind of for, for DACA and understanding of the linkages between between U.S. immigration policies and what they do as a component of the same settler colonial forms of appropriation and appropriation and violence that happened kind of as, you know, Anglo-America pushed westward um, with Manifest Destiny. Well, and that sort of speaks to our theme of homelands and histories and the ways we think very differently about our own moment if we lengthen the window of time in which we're operating, you know, and to think about, I'm very interested, my own scholarship is on the history of immigration. And so, so much of the rhetoric that circulates now is, you know, on legality and illegality, when in the longer window of history, the laws change around people. It's not that people are illegal or not. So what do the terms like homeland and history connote to you? Um, you know, I, when, when, when I think of homeland, I think we all live in an era where we think of homeland security. And I think that's the, you know, I, I, I link it to certain kind of state practices, certain 
moves by the state towards a certain form of patriotism, a fascistic form of, of patriotism uh, that in its very creation creates borders that are solidified in certain ways. To link this back to the last question, one of the things I've been thinking about, and I think many many scholars and activists, uh, indigenous and, and Chicano activists have been thinking about this, are the ways that uh, communities and indigenous sovereignties and indigenous forms of government, uh, governance and territoriality exist in relationship inside and outside of the forms of territoriality that nations, that Western nation states have. That means that the US, Canada, Mexico have to have solidified borders. Those borders cannot be shared. A territory has to be one or the other. But when you look at longer term histories of land use and land practice, in Western spaces, but particularly in indigenous communities, there's always been conflicted spaces, but also shared spaces. That the notion of territoriality that we see in this particular moment moment that arises from a form of polity that that happens and emerges in Western Europe at a particular moment of time is only one form of governmentality and territoriality that exists or that has to exist. And if there's anything that I'd like my work to engage with as an activist, as a scholar, or as an artist is thinking about uh, thinking about thinking otherwise, you know, imagining other possibilities. The Zapatistas in the 90s, you know, shared with us that, you know, otro mundo es posible, another world is possible. And when I think about, you know, what other worlds are possible and do we have to be so constricted by the particularities of the worlds that we've been given? I think that's something that the older I get, the more you realize, right, that like even in our own lifespan, that there were other ways of being. I remember what it was like not to have a cell phone, not to have social media or thinking about the, you know, on the issue of borderlands. Growing up in Michigan, you would just crossover into Canada. And I was thinking about this very recently. I have a young son and I was like, oh, this summer, maybe we'll go to Canada. And I realized I can't do that. I have to get him a passport. And the way the state intrudes on those things. And we take for granted that like, oh, post 9-11, for many of our students, that's the only way of being they've experienced. And again, taking that longer view reminds you there have been other ways of being and there could be yet again. And I, I teach an undergraduate senior seminar, and one of the questions we ask is, you know, is another world possible? Can we imagine a world beyond or outside or after or in spite of capitalism? Each time I've taught it, when we get to the end, it becomes nearly impossible for anyone in that class to think beyond or outside or in spite of capitalism, that as an economic and way of organizing social relationships, it has such a power on all of us that imagining something outside of it has been nearly impossible. We'd love to hear some of your questions. You ready? Um, I just want to say first thank you for um, coming, and I appreciate this dialogue that we get to have with you. Um, my name is Alexis Rubertino. Um, we're a part of a class, um, all of us here. Um, it is a, a studio seminar in the art school, and we read a couple of your, um, uh, we read the beginning of Creating Aslan and um, other things uh, regarding uh, Native Kids Ride Bikes specifically. Um, and that's kind of where our collaborative questions come from, and just to give you a background on where we're coming from. Um, so you say in your book, Creating Aslan, once you know the story, it is your co collective responsibility to tell it. Um, and thinking about this, I've noticed a trend in socially engaged art to rely on the audience or participators in order to be the ones that en enact the change, or artists put their trust in the participators in order to be provoked and then to th um, think enough in order to pursue the change. 
Um, this tactic then replaces the artist's direct involvement in policy making or direct change. Um, and my question is, is this tactic enough or the best way of enacting social change and engagement? Um, or is this possibility of inspiring in numbers more enticing than using more time and less minds to pull out the direct work? It's a good question and one that I'm not certain I have a, a full answer to. I will say that, you know, uh, I'm of the of the perspective that unfortunately we live in a time when artists are brought in to fill in voids in other social services. So why is it that artists are engaging in certain kinds of projects when there's been a reduction in funding of social services that should do that exact same thing? I think that at, at a policy level and at, at an institutional level, I think that's, that's a problem. Do I think that art is the best way to enact or to initiate or to be the change itself? Um, you, you know, as, as I said earlier, you know, I do think, I do hold on to something that our art is liberatory in certain ways. I'm not certain what it is. I think that with the various avant-garde you've seen throughout history, I think many of them have held on to that belief, whether rightly or wrongly, probably wrongly. But I do think there's something uh, liberatory about it. And there's a way, you know, for instance, the majority of my work, I don't, I don't sell. I don't make work for the market. You know, I've been criticized, uh, and rightly so, because I have, a, you know, I come from an institutional space of privilege where I teach at university and don't need to make work to pay my bills, and therefore... I can make work that's gifted or given away. Um, and I think that's, you know, significant about what I'm trying to do is, is make work outside or beyond the marketplace. So in terms of social practice or art, uh, socially engaged art, I think there's some very good examples and I think there's some very bad examples. And I think that at its best, community collaboration is just that. Like when I engage in a project it's that. I don't imagine that it's something beyond that. You know, so, you know, the elders say we don't visit anymore. That's using my access to institutional spaces to create momentary spaces of visiting. Do I think it's going to uh, fundamentally change those institutions or indigenize them or kind of transform them? No. I know that uh, it's a momentary thing, uh, and I know that the, 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 the results will be fleeting. Um, and the same thing I'd say with Anishina Ben Sabim Skwab Native Kids Ride Bikes, that's really about building social relationships and making connections between existing community members and one another. If it goes beyond that, that's wonderful, but I don't think it always will or always has. But I do think there's moments in time where we live in a moment when you know, so many different uh, institutions for public good have been dismantled. And so now we're turning to artists to, to do the work that something else should do. And I think that's a, a fundamental, larger problem. Uh, my name's Nate. Thank you for coming. Uh, for my question, uh, in your interview with America Meredith that we read, you provide a quote from Ryan Redcorn stating, we're Indian political by default. I was struck by the idea that even in a not overtly political project, the aesthetics become politicized. Do you see this as being an issue for indigenous artists or a distracting element if their work tends to be viewed through a specific lens? And do you find that your work strives to have a singular identity or do you feel like it is split serving two different purposes regarding an indigenous and a outside audience. Good question again. Um, so, uh, 
the quote by what Ryan Redcorn, and Ryan Redcorn's a graphic designer and Osage guy. Uh, he's also in the comedy troupe 1491. So he was just uh, mm-hmm. visiting East Lansing and I had dinner with him a few weeks ago. So it's good to see you brought that quote up from the interview with America Meredith, who's a Cherokee painter, who is also the editor for First American Art Magazine. So if you're not familiar, put a plug in for that, a really uh, exciting and interesting article or magazine that she publishes. So uh, I think this is a problematic both for contemporary Indigenous artists, but for artists of color, for queer artists, for many other artists who, you know, there's a certain kind of reading that when work becomes biographical, you know, uh, people only read it in that way. And I think that happens to certain artists and not to all artists. And, you know, why is that? That said, my work is always political, even when it's not politically, it's intentionally political. And I have some that is overly agitprop. It's fine to be read one dimensional. In the class I was just meeting with, I showed them a line five pipeline risograph poster that I, I I recently produced and, you know, my own politics. I'm vehemently against that pipeline. Line 5, Enbridge Line 5, of course, was created in 1953. It's a approximately 700-mile pipeline that brings tar sands from Western Canada through Wisconsin and Michigan to be processed and refined in Sarnia, Ontario. And, of course, Sarnia is right uh, right by uh, a First Nations, an Anishinaabeg First Nations community that has some of the largest cancer rates of any community because of the processing of so many chemicals and particularly uh, oil refineries there. But with this image, there is a, <laughs> it is a unidimensional reading of it. A poster kind of demarking or discussing or showing the 20 plus, I don't remember the exact number, the nearly 30 oil spills that have happened since that pipeline opened in 1953 and spilling 1.1 million gallons of oil. You know, there's not a lot of readings that can be read into that poster. It's intentionally one advocating uh, for the dismantling and shutting down of that pipeline. So I'm okay with a one-dimensional reading of that. You know, other works, particularly in museums and galleries, uh, kind of texts I write, they need to be more nuanced in understanding of them. And I think that uh, with Indigenous, with artists of color, oftentimes the work becomes read as biographical. And I think that's a hard dynamic and hard, hard dialectic or hard tension that people who aren't part of that community have when engaging with that art. And there's been scholars and critics who've looked at, you know, the ways that, particularly with Indigenous art, when you come to it, you have to both understand the particularities of the knowledge system the artist is working with, as well as the understanding of the discourses and structures of contemporary art. And that's high expectation. That's a lot to expect of audiences, whether Indigenous or not, whether a person, uh, a member of that individual artist community or another indigenous nation. There's a lot of expectations there. So with that, I think there'll probably be a lot of misinterpretations. And when you make something and put it in the world, you have to be open to understand and think through its possible uh, multiple readings, whether they're ones you want or not. That seems like the focus of your work that is very process-oriented seems partly designed to break down that singular reading, right? Because you have to kind of engage with the work and help create it. That seems itself kind of an anti-capitalist way of of being that you can't just sort of, okay, now I'm going to absorb the art and the artist and then get out. I think time, uh, you know, non-capitalist, non-linear time is very significant in my work. If you come to my talk tonight, and I've said it a a number of other times, but I'll talk a bit about this term, uh, anikubajigan which is uh, an Anishinaabemuin term meaning one's ancestor, 
but also one's descendant. So it's re- referencing in particularly uh, one's great-grandparent or one's great-grandchild, but it's the same word for both. But it breaks down linear notions of history that past is behind us, kind of the futures in front of us, and actually creates a relationship with one's ancestors and one's descendants that is very intimate and very real. And to do that, you have to engage in a very in, in, in long-term, non-linear notions of time. So much of my work, whether studio or uh, otherwise, I think I'm trying to evoke and employ this particular notion of temporality that isn't linear, that doesn't somehow put past behind us, future in front of us, and somehow we can get to this, you know, attainable future of some sort. When you were talking a moment ago, I was thinking of, of a project I do called Machif Machin, The People, The Medicine, which is a collaboration with plants, where I actually have conversations, learn from and with uh, medicinal plants, and then harvest them, and then make prints from them. I print them in inks I harvest, inks I make from berries I harvest, and then give them away. They're not sold. Um, so there's a long-term relationship between me and the plant, but also between me and the people who share knowledge about the plant and then who receive these prints. So lots of ways of thinking through and around these questions. Um, hi, my name is Maria, and I also wanted to say thanks for coming and spending time talking to us. My question is that you mentioned that one of the long-term outcomes of your low writing project was both the inclusion of native tradition, culture, and history but also a commentary on sustainability within transportation. How do you envision the low-riding project impacting within the relationship that exists between native and colonialist, colonialist values? What type of conversations do you think that this will spark between the two groups, and do you foresee an impact or a change being made on colonialist viewpoints of sustainability and conversation from projects similar to this? Another good question. Um, for me, it's hard to say um, or, or hard to predict or hard to judge kind of what impacts or relationships they have. As someone whose practice is fundamentally about building relationships and engaging with other people, I think that, that I want to put that in play. I want that to happen. If you would have asked me this two years ago, I think various uh, conversations were happening about sustainability and about climate change and resistance to climate change and understanding potential transformations that needed to happen happen at a, at a dominant structural level. Um, you know, at this point in time, I'm, I'm, I'm a little less... Uh, um, I don't think those are happening at the upper echelons of state and capitalist uh, institutions. So because of that, I'm concerned. You know, this is a slight aside, but I think that what we see is that there's very powerful systems of violence and oppression, whether it's violence to the land, whether it's oppression of other in- individuals, whether it's the creation of uh, patriarchal systems, uh, those are all intertwined. And if you look at the scholarly text and the creative text as well, part of what I, I'd like to put in place is how all of these are intertwined together. If it doesn't have, you probably haven't heard it as much on, on U.S. news, but I've been kind of attentive to it is that in Western Canada, just uh, uh, just last Friday, there was a court case that uh, came through, and this was a, a young Cree man who was in his 20s, Colton Bushy, who was shot three times in the head by a Saskatchewan farmer a number of months ago, and that uh, ruling came down on Friday, and Stanley, the individual who shot him three times in the head, was, was acquitted for murder and or manslaughter. This is to say that there's institutional forms of violence and oppression that become reproduced within structures and systems that whether or not we control them. So 
when I make things and when I'm engaged in practices, I put them out there in the world and how they operate within these existing systems to some extent is outside my control. My name is Tyler. Uh, so my question is, uh, as artists, we want to avoid cliche and heavy handed work uh, crafted without intention. Um, sometimes this uh, want can lead to work uh, made with intent by the artist, but that isn't understood by anyone who isn't familiar um, with the piece. So for socially engaged art, how blatant do you find that art needs to art needs to be in order to actually be an effective piece of social engagement? How much of the artist needs to be pre present and how much of the activist in your own practice? How do you balance these two sides? Good. Uh, we, we were talking, uh, Julie and I were talking earlier about balance and the fact that balance doesn't exist. It's a, you know, it's a process, but we, at any moment we're going to fall off and, you know, as we're trying to balance anything, right? And I have no intention to balance. Come to my work as, as someone with particular political motivations. Some of the work, particularly the print-based work that exists in, in poster and print form is freely downloadable off the internet. You know, that has an agitprop position. That is intended to agitate and provoke, to make people think about particular issues, oftentimes indigenous issues, oftentimes environmental issues, oftentimes immigration issues, right? And how all of these are, are linked together. The other work, the you know, what could be called the socially engaged work or the work I'm doing oftentimes in galleries or in museums, you're right, is less heavy-handed. Yet the ways that those are read, I think, are going to, to differ greatly based on uh, the baggage and the knowledge and the information people bring to them. Uh, the more I do things, the, the more I understand that and, and, and I'm open to that. With Anishna Ben Saab, Native Kids Ride Bikes, I've done that a number of times with communities that I know and a number of times with communities I don't know. Some of them have been very successful and some of them have been very awful based on existing relationships between me and people in those communities and people in those communities and the institution that brought me in. So I think a lot of times it's it's not even necessarily on the actual social engagement, but rather the relationships, the networks, the interactions that exist outside and beyond and around those particular engagements. As, as an artist, as much as I'd like to say I'm, I'm against hierarchies in all forms, which I, I am, you know, as an artist, sometimes we bring our own ideas into things, right? And I think that the more engagements I do, the less I have to have particular ideas of what the, I'd like them to be. So, you know, building bikes, you know, those emerge out of collective conversations. You know, there's ideas of what, you know, clearly we're there to build a bike, but what will that be? Following up on that question, so you're an artist, you present your work in these different venues, but you're also a curator, right? So how do you think about your role in positioning? What are the kinds of decisions sort of, and conversations you have with yourself and with artists whose work you're curate, curating in the museum context. Sure. So I have this adjunct curator uh, title and position, and I don't do a lot of curatorial work in that museum, but I am curating a show at a university gallery in March, um, which is on land and water, thinking about what those topics, concepts mean. And again, sometimes it's bringing in 
activist projects into the museum context. I think Nato Thompson, the curator who was with Creative Time for some time, is probably most well known for that, kind of integrating activist projects into the art world and kind of reciprocally bringing art world projects into into activist world. So one of the works that's going to be in the show is some of the ephemera from Lee Sprague, who is a Anishinaabe activist, and he's kind of most well known for his knowledge on wild rice. He's a wild ricer, kind of one of the, he's a former chief uh, of one of the uh, First Nation communities in Michigan. He was leading the, one of the canoe brigades at Standing Rock, and his canoes were stolen um, by the state and destroyed. Um, But what we're going to have in the show is some of his ephemera paddles and life jackets and things like that. You know, clearly, you know, he was in, in kind of some time ago living in Berkeley and doing performance art and kind of kind of identified as an artist in that at point in time. But this is clearly taking some of that more ephemera from activist projects, placing it in the context of an art gallery and museum. I think the you can create various interesting conversations and projects around that. What's next? What are you working on now or what are some upcoming projects? Um, so I, I, I'm working on a number of things, uh, trying to do less and less academic writing. I have a number of shows coming up. One is a new project for the Grand Rapids Art Museum doing large format uh, cyanotypes. So the year the cyanotype was was invented as a photographic process was actually the same as the, the, the last treaty was signed in the state of Michigan, the Treaty of La Pointe. So I'm doing a series of landscapes and waterscapes and uh, skyscapes using this process to think about the relationship between the materiality and the form itself. And I think this goes back to some of your earlier questions, right? I'm really interested in the relationship between materiality and the form and how those all are intertwined. I have a, another solo uh, project building bikes. I might be doing lowrider canoes for a gallery at Western University in Ontario. And then I'm just trying to, to do some more writing and do some more working and just be a human being and build a better world that in this moment in time, it seems that it's really hard to be a good human being. So if I can, you know, uh, try to be a better human being, uh, I'll, I'll go that route. Thank you all very much. Shimi Gwech, thanks for having me on. It's been fun to listen and engage in conversation. Thank you all again so much. So today our producer is Chris Cavera. Research assistance is by Lauren O'Connor and Elizabeth Brownlow. Special thanks to our co-sponsors, the School of Cultural and Critical Studies, the School of Art, and the Department of English at BGSU. Thank you all. Bamapi. <laughs>